You tuned in to the Policy Talks podcast by Bharti Institute of Public Policy from the Indian School of Business. We hope to understand the personalities behind policies and demystify the complex policy making labyrinth. Every Tuesday, we speak to seasoned stalwarts and promising young legislative fellows who have made indelible marks in shaping the Indian policy landscape. Hello everyone, a warm welcome Mr. O.P. Agarwal. It's a pleasure to have a very highly respected thinker and a practitioner who has a wealth of experience and knowledge in the urban governance and urban development sector. We have with us Mr. O.P. Agarwal, the former CEO of World Resource Institute, who has been involved with the issues of poverty elevation, capacity building, governance and environment. He has been the member of the Indian Administrative Service from 1979 to 2007, during which he had uh, occupied a number of positions in the Government of India and the Government of Assam. He has also been the Joint Secretary Training and the Joint Secretary Urban Transport in the Ministry of Urban Development in Government of India. He holds a PhD in Transport Economics from Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, a Master's in Transportation from Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a Bachelor's in Electrical Engineering from IIT Chennai. A warm welcome, sir, to this conversation, the Public Policy Talks. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Arushi. A delight to be here. I will begin this conversation, you know, with your experience. And as you have been the Joint Secretary of Urban Transport, you know, you were the principal author of the India's National Urban Transport Policy. This policy was adopted in 2006 and remains a key document for transport investments in the country since then. What do you think are the, the key experiences you have had? And how would you like to share, uh, you know, your experiences from the immense pool of knowledge regarding the development of the urban transport system in India over the decades? Thanks. Thanks for that question, Arushi. I think that's a great one. Let me start by stepping back a little bit. Till 1986, there was no subject of urban transport in the allocation of business rules of the Government of India. So if you had a rail-based system, it came with the Ministry of Railways, even within an urban area. And anything that was a road-based system came with the Ministry of Road Transport. So till then, we had not recognized that there is a strong synergy between transport planning and land use planning. So it was in 1986 for the first time that the Government of India created a new subject of urban transport and allocated it to the Ministry of Urban Development. So it was taken away from road transport, taken away from uh, railways and given to the Ministry of Urban Development. So that's why you saw that the Calcutta Metro came up as a railway system, but the Delhi Metro and subsequent metros have come up under the Ministry of Urban Development. So this is how urban transport really started. 86, the subject was allocated. Ten years later, in 1996, we had the Delhi Metro started being conceptualized. And ten years after that, in 2006, we had the National Urban Transport Policy, which got adopted. But after that, today, this has become an extremely important field because cities are virtually choking under congestion. 
climate change has become an important issue, air quality has become an important issue, and urban transport has actually been contributing to these adverse impacts in a very big way. That's why it's become a very important uh, subject. And today you hear of city after city after city looking at building mass transit systems. I think that's what the urban transport policy really did was till it came, the focus of cities was if you have more congestion, widen the roads. What the policy said, that's not going to help you. What you need to do is shift people away from their personal vehicles into public transport. That's the big change that has happened. Today, I think, you know, that trend is continuing, but I think we need to go to the next level. The next level really is that instead of looking at urban transport only as an engineering problem, we have to look at it in a more mature way and bring in a better integration between transport and land use, which was the basic reason for which the subject was allocated to that ministry. I think that is what the next step should be. I think a proactive approach and looking towards the future is what you are suggesting at this point of time. And I think uh, we are talking about population and I think India has been uh, taking these steps looking at the population of our country. You know, in your recent article, you have substantiated uh, your argument with evidence data. And uh, you've mentioned that uh, Indian cities are projected to house 870 million people by 2050 a number that was 377 million in 2011. And of course, your argument for sustainable cities. So can you please discuss this issue of sustainability, especially in the context of the urban sector? So think of it this way. In the next 30 years, I'm not even going to 1950, or let's say even if we get to 2050, our urban population is going to more than double. Now, what does this mean? 30 years is one generation, just 30 years. So we are going to add as many people to urban India in the next 30 years as we have added from the beginning of civilization. I mean, just think of it in this form. By the time your children get to your age, India's urban population would have doubled. So I see this as a kind of a tsunami that is taking place. You know, whether it's people moving to existing cities or whether it's existing rural areas becoming urban, that's not the issue. But the fact is, we are going to have a lot more urban population today. So the consequent question that comes up is, are we preparing ourselves for this huge population growth? Delhi is going to become the world's largest, most populous urban agglomeration in the next 5 to 10 years. It will overtake Tokyo. It's looking at a population of something like 40 million. Now, where are we going to learn from? There's no one else to learn from. We have to find our own solutions for others to follow. So this is the situation where we are in. And clearly, sustainability is very important because, you know, natural resources have a finite quantity. And if we use this quantity for such a rapid growth in the population, are we going to run out of these natural resources? Questions that come up are, if you're going to have 800 million people, are they all going to be in one city of 800 million? Or will you have 800 cities of 1 million? Or something in between? You know, sustainability becomes a very important issue in deciding this. And I would say that there is something like, you know, a capacity of a land area. How many people can a certain area of land support? So these are sustainability issues that are very important. I mean, I'm not even talking about pollution and financial sustainability but the carrying capacity of a particular plot of land is something that we all have to think about as we design future policies. 
Right. I think these are very imperative, you know, challenges and uh, policy issues that need to be thought about uh, while designing policies for the future. Just taking my question a little ahead, uh, Chennai witnessed severe floods. Very recently, we saw Bangalore almost submerged in water. Many scholars have, uh, you know, accused rapid urbanization for this cause. How do you think we can address this particular issue? Because more and more cities in India are getting impacted uh, with these kind of challenges that are coming. So I think, see, rapid urbanization will happen. That is a natural phenomenon. I think that is you no know, stopping it. And we should let it happen. The issue is, are we prepared for it? Are we planning for it? I think that's where the weakness lies. You know, Everybody knows that the population is going to go up to this level. There are enough projections, there's enough trends from the past which tell us that this will happen. Now, it's very important for us to be able to plan for this so that these problems don't come up. You know, we don't encounter these problems. Urbanization will happen. Now, what happened in Chennai and Bangalore, really the lack of planning, lack of proper planning, is when people started moving into these cities, there was a pressure on land, there was a pressure for housing, there was a pressure for office complexes, there was a pressure from so many of these things. Now when builders came in, builders make money out of constructing these buildings. Right. So obviously their motivation was build as much as possible. Right. But in constructing these buildings, what they forgot was there were natural water channels under the ground, which you don't really see with the naked eye. But these natural water channels got blocked. And once they got blocked, you started seeing a lot of these floods because the water which goes through a natural channel didn't find its natural outlet. It came out. So classic example of how inadequate planning for the future really led to this problem. Mm -hmm. We've not really woken up to what our population is going to become and we are not really planning well in advance for this. Right, right. And, uh, you know, if I talk about the local bodies and the local institutions, do you think they are adequately empowered when we talk about urban governance, because the kind of issues you are just mentioning, I don't think so. The local bodies, the institutions that are managing the urban uh, governance in, in a way, even know about these problems. That's right. That's right. She's absolutely right. Our local bodies, unlike in many other parts of the world, our local bodies really are not empowered. So we had an amendment to the constitution which recommended that powers be given to the local bodies. But here again, it's a political issue. At the state level, no politician wants to give up their powers to go to the, to be given to the local body because they fear what has happened in other countries may happen here. Just to give you an example, in many countries around the world, the mayors are more important than the governor of the state. Nobody knows who's the governor of Moscow province. But everyone knows who's the governor of Moscow. I mean, who's the mayor of Moscow. Similarly, we had a mayor of Seoul who became the president of Seoul. Nobody knows that intermediate level who was the political head. So that is something that the state level political leadership is conscious about and will be very difficult to get them to persuade or persuade them to you know, give out more powers to the local body. That's the problem that we face. But that is a political issue which will take its own time. But what we need to do even while that is going on is can we not create bodies which are responsible for the city level administration in a more comprehensive manner. 
So suppose you have say a department in the state government that is responsible for one particular city in that state, say the largest city in that state. Mm -hmm. And that department, even at the state level, their responsibility being one city, they will take responsibility for planning. Maybe someone elected from that city could become the minister for that department. So we have to find alternatives. You know, as of now, the local bodies really are not adequately empowered and not adequately capacitated. This is definitely a weakness. Right, right. And um, I remember our conversation earlier where you give the example of the Guwahati uh, Development yes, Department. Yes. I think some of the states have been taking up these steps and probably the others will follow, will learn from, from these uh, best practices that are being followed in other states. You just mentioned the capacity building part of it. So I'm going to, my next question probably is going to be on that. How important is capacity building for urbanization process? And what do you think, who are the key stakeholders whom we need to target here? I think capacity building is fundamental, absolutely fundamental. And that's where I see, you know, the kind of programs that ISB is conducting. These are core requirement today. You know, we have educational institutions in the country which teach urban planning. You have the School of Planning and Architecture. You have the SEPT University in Ahmedabad. Many such institutions, leading institutions, which teach urban planning. But what I argue is urban planning is something that we need maybe once in five years or ten years. What we need on a day-to-day -day basis is urban management, managing a city. Now, unfortunately, our management schools, people who pass out from there, don't go and work in municipalities. They work in more glamorous institutions than municipal bodies. So the capacity in the municipal bodies for urban management is extremely weak. And unless we build that capacity, frankly, we're going to see good civil engineering work, but poorly managed cities. And this is one of the problems that the country is facing very badly. In fact, the finance minister in her last budget speech spoke about this. It's now today mentioned in the last budget that we will invest in building capacity in the cities. So I think it's, it's really a reflection of what the country really needs today. Right, right. No, I completely agree that capacity building is something that needs to be focused. And also the aspect about, uh, you know, talking about managerial practices and including some of these in the public policy domain as a whole. So yeah, point well taken for sure. I'll move ahead and uh, talk about a little different aspect right now. Some of the Indian states uh, showed very different patterns of interdependence between urbanization and the agriculture output. So for example, if I talk about Punjab, the Green Revolution has caused urbanization and this is around the agro-allied sectors. You know, there is industrialization around that, very unlike the state of Maharashtra, to give you an example. So what kind of public policies would help in better economic interdependence between urban areas and the surrounding regions, you know, to take the context of the question? So I think cities will have different economic activities that drive them. So this kind of diversity in the prime economic activity of a city is desirable. We need to have that. What is important is to find out what is the unique strength of that city. Mm -hmm. 
and really get the city to grow around that unique strength. What is happening in Punjab and Maharashtra, you've, you've outlined that very well and that's the reason it is. But we must realize that cities grow initially as a market for agricultural produce. Right. Or they grow as a market for what the surrounding area produces. That's really the strength of why a city came up. But the moment we divide the area into urban and rural and start planning for them separately, that leads to problems. Then the interdependence is not thought of. So this has been one of the problems that we have been facing in India. You have a separate sector of rural and a separate sector of urban. And that interdependence, uh, strength of interdependence, so to say, tends to get lost. My suggestion for this is, what we need to do is look at much stronger regional planning and create a regional plan where the rural areas and the associated needs in the urban areas are thought of together. And that's how, you know, you get the strength of the rural area. Let me give you an example, Nagpur. Nagpur surrounding areas have probably the best oranges in the world. But what has Nagpur done to support that? You know, this is one example of how an agricultural based rural sector can contribute to deciding what is the economic strength of the city. Let's take uh, Ludhiana. Ludhiana is known traditionally for its woolen garments. Now, I think in India, what we need to do is today, Ludhiana may be the core or the hub for woolen products in India. What do we need to do to make Ludhiana the core or the hub for the global urban products? How do we get ambitious to take it to the very next level, you know, much higher level than where it is today? So I think this is where a kind of a regional plan where the surrounding areas contribute to the economic activities of the city and the city supports the economic activities in the rural area. That kind of a thing, if we do on a regional basis, will be very useful. Now, China, for example, I'll give you an example from China. China has decided to look at 19 clusters. Now, this cluster-based approach is covering a fairly large area. And this cluster includes many cities. So they are planning for that whole cluster as a complete comprehensive package. And within that larger plan, you have city level master plans or city level plans come up in the context of that larger plan. This is something we haven't done in India. This is pretty interesting. Yeah, this is, this is really interesting. And thanks for uh, the kind of examples that you gave, uh, you know, with this question. So talking about uh, the private sector participation, my question is that how far did the government bodies succeed uh, you know, in mobilizing this participation of the private sector and other stakeholders in the urban governance in general and maybe for urban transportation in particular? So it's been happening. It's been happening to some extent. Let's say if you start with transport, I know that a few cities in India have even taken up metro rail projects through the private sector. Hyderabad itself is one of them. Gurgaon had also taken up one, of course, that didn't work, so they had to give it up. Mumbai has one line, which is a private line. A line connecting New Delhi station to the airport came up as a PPP line. So in some ways, this has come even on metro rail. A number of cities are also looking at public bus services coming through, you know, PPPs, you know, public-private partnerships where the private sector is operating the buses, 
but the public agency is deciding what should be the routes and what should be the timings. Number of transportation services in urban areas like taxis and auto rickshaws, they are a basic core piece of the urban transport system. They're all private. So to that extent, the private sector is involved in a fairly big way in urban transport. The issue would be, what about other urban infrastructure? What about water supply systems? What about sanitation systems? What about power systems? You know, a lot of these others are also there. And I think it's extremely important to start looking at the private sector in all these areas because government does not have the money to support those investments. Yeah. Government just does not have the money. And second, when it comes to operating something, the government can never be as efficient as the private sector can be. Right. So in order to leverage funds from the capital markets and also to leverage private sector operational efficiencies, it's very important for us to leverage the private sector. Where we are probably a little weak today is getting out of the culture that public and private don't mix. You know, there is a lot of uh, mutual suspicion and distrust between them which needs to go. A public-private partnership works well when mentally we think of the other as a partner, not as a contractor. So I think this is where, again, a number of you know, programs are being conducted on changing these mindsets, you know, creating a culture where you think of the other as a partner. Right. A number of uh, capacity building programs also have been going on, on public-private partnerships. Many institutions, including ISP, have been conducting these programs. I think this is really the way to go forward. Right. Uh, so I think the most important thing, the most important take, take away from what you've just talked about is the trust between the government and the private sector. And once that is there, then they will uh, look at each other more as partners and not just uh, a, a relationship that is more oriented towards, uh, you know, the vendor delivering a service and, uh, you know. Exactly. Right. My last question to you is geared towards another problem that we face. And this problem is because of urbanization in particular. The problem is of the slums. And, uh, you know, there is an absence of the slum management strategy. We have had examples across India where we've seen, uh, you know, some cities trying to manage slums at a later stage when there was a lot of impact uh, from those slums in the middle of the city. Uh, but uh, a proactive approach has not been seen here. Uh, the integrated planning paradigm of the 90s uh, with components like the shelter structure, upgrading access to income opportunities, uh, you know, human capital formation inputs to managing the intergenerational inequities, all of that is something uh, that has not worked for the urban poor. How do you, uh, you know, think about the management of this particular issue and how can we think about sustainability along with uh, slum management planning. So that is the most important aspect I think when we are talking about this wide issue of uh, urbanization and the urban challenges in today's uh, world, today's India. That's a very interesting question and uh, a very important question I would also add. You see it's, it's very very unfortunate that 25% of our urban population lives in slums. And if I look at it, why has this happened? Again, it's the same thing. We've not looked ahead. We've allowed people to come, despite knowing that urbanization will bring people into the cities, 
we've not planned for them. They come into the cities because they need jobs, they need a place to live, they don't get a place to live, they go and gather together in slums like this and live in, I would say, pretty inhuman conditions. We've always thought of them as, oh, we don't need them, but we need them in our houses to work. We need them as rickshaw pullers. We need them so many other things. And I think COVID was one occasion when people's eyes, eyebrows were raised. That, what have we done? You know, these are people who walked back hundreds of kilometers to their houses because they had nothing there. I think it was a very tragic uh, story. Uh, we thought of them as slum dwellers. We never thought of them as, I would use another term, as guest contributors to the city's economy. You need to put them on a much higher pedestal because that's the contribution they are making. So I think this whole story of slums has been one of not giving it the importance that it needs in forward planning, perhaps not even in trying to resolve that problem. But let me not sort of leave it at a, you know, a pessimistic kind of a thing. I've seen phenomenal work happening on this. In Orissa, for example, there's something called the Jaga mission. Jaga in Oriya is place. And Jaga is also the first name of Lord Jagannath. Right. So I think they've used that together and come up with this mission called Jaga Mission, which aims at making Orissa slum-free. And I have uh, been fortunate to visit some of these areas near Bhubaneswar. It's unbelievable what they've done. You know, land rights have been given to people living there. Infrastructure has been built up to give them, you know, now they can't be living in fancy houses, but they're not leading an inhuman life. You know, hospitals have been opened there, healthcare has been set up there, schools have been opened there. And all of this has happened because one or two officers have felt the need for it, championed it, and overseen this. So it's not something that can't be done. All it needs is a few champions who'll say, hey, this is my mission, I want to get this done. So uh, this is what we need to create. And I think uh, probably that one officer, if we have 30 clones of him, which institutions like ISP and others can create, we'll have this problem sorted out. It's really a mindset issue that this is an important breed that we need to take care of. Completely agree. And in fact, we documented one of these cases. You were talking about the COVID movement of uh, you know, the migrants and who were living in these areas. We documented case studies from Punjab and we saw a lot of uh, private sector institutions, a lot of uh, the NGOs, uh, you know, the different stakeholders in the management, the city management around, they actually pulled in resources to help these migrants reach back to their homelands. So there have been these good practices, and I hope uh, you know some of these uh, are going to be taken by other states and initiatives where uh, you know urban governance is a priority and the states understand that and look forward uh, to planning, strategizing, and implementing all the projects much more efficiently. So thank you so much, uh, Mr. Agarwal, for this very informative session. It was truly a pleasure discussing the imperative public policy issues around urban governance, urban planning, urban management with you and the kind of expertise that you brought into this talk. Thank you so much once again. Thank you so much, Arush. It's been a delight to be here. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.